I'm Sinead O'Moore and you're listening to Every Mum the Podcast. Every Mum the Podcast was created for one reason, to get honest about parenthood, about the realities, the joys, the surprises and the fears, the moments that form us and the ones that we don't hear people talk enough about, like miscarriage and baby loss, which is discussed in this episode. We are proud to partner with Water Wipes as our sponsor for this season as they share this mission with us. Together, we are committed to providing more reassurance for parents with trusted products and this podcast, helping us all take those important steps towards building a community of support for every mum. This week, October 9th to 15th, is Baby Loss Awareness Week, where we remember the lives of babies lost in pregnancy or shortly after birth. This year, more than ever, it is critically important to stop, to listen, to talk and to grieve because for too many months now, too many mums have had to hear bad news alone and too many dads and partners told to stay away. Sinead Hingston is a mum to two gorgeous children, but during lockdown suffered her first miscarriage, followed shortly by an ectopic pregnancy. Sinead is no stranger to grief after having lost her first husband while pregnant with her eldest child, Lily, but has discovered the healing power of talking. And so here, she kindly and courageously shares her experience so as to help others feel less alone. We've all seen the powerful pictures of Chrissy Teigen and John Legend earlier this month, and we hope that by sharing this story, we can all move closer to respectfully acknowledging the strength of every parent in pain after loss, while remembering that dads and partners are not visitors, they're parents. Thank you so much for joining me on Every Mum the Podcast. Um, you're joining me today because you have a really important story to tell. You've a really important experience to share. It's one that it's very, very challenging. It's very difficult. Um, but it is one that I think if we don't talk enough about, more women will feel more alone in. And right now, given the story that you have to share, being alone is the worst place to be. Yes, not great at all. So take us back to when you found out that you were expecting baby number three. Number three. So I have two perfectly healthy, gorgeous children at home, two very breezy pregnancies. Um, so we started trying in January for number three. We decided we'd, you know, one for the road, as I kept calling it. Um, so I started trying in January and in April, we found out that we were expecting. So we were absolutely over the moon. Um, and yeah, I was very early days, um, and I was sitting at home, you know, life was extremely stressful. We were at home with two kids trying to homeschool and keep a two-year-old occupied while we were working, you know, the usual hours with no relief from it all. So, um, it was an extremely stressful time as it was, but I was literally sitting at the kitchen table working and I started to bleed. Um, so I went into the bathroom and called my husband and I said, oh, this doesn't look good. You know, this, this isn't right. I was, I was about five and a half weeks. Um, so I rang Hollis Street and they said, look, you know, obviously you need to come in and we need to do some bloods and urine samples and everything else and we'll check you out. So I was like, okay. Um, and I had gone onto the website to see what the situation was um, with somebody being able to come with me. Um, but it very clearly stated on the website that, you know, it was, you have to come alone to any appointments, anti-medical, anything. So I was like, okay. 
So I had literally told my mom a couple of days previous that I was pregnant. So I texted her and just said, look, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, but this hasn't happened to me before. Um, I'm just heading into Hollow Street to find out. So I went into Hollow Street and answered all the usual questions at the door um, and went down to the emergency room and kind of sat alone in that emergency room, hoping and praying that everything was really going to just be fine and that it was just you know, spotting or whatever they like to call it, early pregnancy. Um, so I went in, had my blood taken, did a urine sample, and they did a, a tummy scan. But obviously I was so early on, or early on that they, they couldn't see anything on the scan. Um, but they were quite happy that my uterine lining was quite thick looking. And she said, look, it could just be a bit earlier than you think and everything will be fine. So I went home that evening, not really knowing you know, whether I was having a miscarriage or I wasn't having a miscarriage. And I then bled a lot more that evening. So I phoned them the next morning just to let them know that I had bled a lot more. Um, and they asked me the usual questions, you know, have you filled two sanitary pads? And I was like, well, no, not quite, but it's still quite heavy. Um, and then they checked my blood and said that they were high enough that they should be able to see a baby or something. So I was like, okay. So back in again on the Wednesday and I asked that time, would my husband be allowed to come with me? And they said, no, unfortunately, I'd have to go by myself. So back into Hollis Street again and I had an internal scan um, and they saw gestational sac, yolk sac, but there was no embryo. So I instantly thought, oh, well, that's it. Obviously, that's what happened yesterday. Um, but the sonographer was like, no, it, it could just be too early that we're just not able to see it yet. Um, so thankfully, I actually knew this lady from when I had Lily, from when I had my first baby. Um, and I have to say, of all the people that I've ever met in Hollow Street, she most certainly knows how to manage me. Um, you know, my, my husband passed away during my first pregnancy, so I had quite a difficult kind of second half of that. And this particular midwife at the time was just absolutely brilliant with me. She was just well able to tell me, look, this is it, and be very straightforward with me. Um, so thankfully she was the woman that was there that day and she said look come on back into me next week and we'll do more bloods and we'll do another scan and we'll see what happens then so I was like okay so she kind of had an element of hope I suppose that everything was going to be okay so I had a full week then of you know doing another pregnancy test just to see if the line was still there and not really knowing because I'd obviously never experienced anything like this before um, and the following Monday then I I bled for the entire day. It was the most horrific thing I have ever experienced. I literally was on the toilet for the day trying to explain to my eight-year-old that I just didn't feel very well. And, you know, my, my two-year-old running around the house and my husband getting stressed because he's trying to work and all of this is going on. It was just absolute carnage. Um, so I phoned Hollis Street and just said, look, I have had quite a bit of bleeding today. I'm assuming that that's the pregnancy that it's passed. And they said, look, come on back in tomorrow. We'll do another scan and see... And in my heart and soul at that stage, I had kind of hoped that it had, that I had miscarried naturally and that mm. it was, you know, that was it and that's all I'd have to go through kind of thing. Um, but when I went in for the scan again by myself, there was a little embryo there and no heartbeat. So I found that bit just whatever about the bleeding that was traumatizing enough, but that was just the most soul destroying thing that I have ever heard. Um, you know, you, you just, you instantly feel an attachment to these little beans from the moment you see the line, you know? Um, 
so I was absolutely distraught that day. You know, I was just so upset and I had to wait another week then for another scan to, to confirm that it wasn't going to be a viable pregnancy. Um, so yeah, I had to go home, you know, drove myself home again, kind of in the car and got home and Michael asked me, you know, all the questions obviously because he wasn't there and me in absolutely no mood to answer any of them because I had just, you know, had to hear it all and I just didn't want to have to explain it all again, but I obviously had to. But also um, process it yourself. Like if you're hearing absolutely. This news while you're experiencing the news, processing it enough to retell it on and get all the information correct why do you have to go back next week well they just need to confirm that there's no heartbeat but they told you there was no heartbeat you know there's definitely no heartbeat but i just need to go back so they can verify that there's no and he he, it was just it was just really really hard um and so hard for him being so far removed i mean he should have been there holding my hand or at least you know outside the door whenever whenever the appointment was over, it was just really difficult. So the following week I went in and um, they, they obviously confirmed that it wasn't going to be a, ver- a viable pregnancy. Um, but I, I had a couple of options. Um, I was apprehensive about taking the tablets that you, you can take to kind of, you know, progress things and have the miscarriage happen a bit quicker. Um, purely because of the kids I had heard, you know, just various different experiences, I suppose, from different people who had taken them saying it is quite painful and, you know, the cramping was quite bad and I, you know, was in the bathroom for the day or whatever. So I was like, I can't do this again. Like, it's too hard to explain this to Lily. So I just need to really just get this done. So they asked me, would I like to have the DNC? And I said, yeah, I think that is the best option. Um, So I went in on the Friday then. So that was the Wednesday. And luckily I got an appointment for the Friday to go in. You know, I'm walking in the front door of Hollow Street. There's all these parents coming out with their newborn, not even parents, mothers coming out with their newborns. And I was by myself and Michael dropped me at the door and I walked in knowing that I was not heading into labor, that I was mm-hmm. heading to a very different section. Um, and then, so I had the DNC on the Friday. Um, and luckily again, I was brought in at eight o'clock in the morning. I didn't have to hang around. I started to get quite panicky, just kind of lying there waiting for the inevitable. Um, so they brought me in quite early, which was which was amazing. Um, and I was out by, I think it was around two or three o'clock, I was allowed to go home. Um, so I had a couple of days of just trying to get my head around everything and feeling quite sad and I suppose disappointed. You know, I'm 39 years old, so no spring chicken, as I keep telling myself. Um, I'm just really trying to look after myself in a way that you can, you know, when you're at home in the middle of a pandemic and your children are at home and your husband's at home and everyone's just you know, you're trying to hide it from the kids, which was the hardest thing to mm. do, really. Um, yeah. As, as a 39-year-old woman and a mum of two who's gone Geriatric through... mum. No, but <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you're, you're a grown-up woman, you know? Absolutely. You have two children. You've been through birth. You've been through pregnancies. You've been through labour. How much of this miscarriage was com- a completely new piece of information for you because like I I wouldn't know what to expect I didn't have a clue so I I know maybe two people or knew two people at the time who had experienced miscarriages all of it, like one of my friends were missed miscarriages so never experienced the bleeding side of things that I had gone through um another one of my friends um you know 
the baby had never developed. There was no embryo there in the first place. And then another mis miscarriage. So, so none of the people I'd spoken to even before had ever experienced the, the full on bleeding at home that I mm. had. And I was completely traumatized. Never in a million years, you know, I didn't even really know. I knew what a miscarriage was. Like, don't get me wrong, but mm. I didn't know what it entailed. I didn't know what, what your body went through. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and even the, the aftermath of it and the, the DNC and, you know, the fact that they, they removed the lining of your womb and all of these things that you're trying to process and trying to go, well, how do I, how do I build that back up? What, what vitamins do I need to take? What food yeah. do I need to eat? You know, all these million questions. And, you know, the midwives and the staff in Hollister are absolutely incredible. They always have been. But being handed a leaflet and, you know, being pointed to the bereavement section on the back, you know, if you need any support, ring that number. I needed to sit down with somebody who had experienced almost what I had experienced and just felt not as alone as it did feel. Yeah. Um, so I decided to share my experience on Instagram because of how alone I felt. And I just couldn't get over the responses mm. and the women reaching out saying, like, I just went through this last week or, you know, just so many different experiences. But it was just incredible. And I just find Instagram such a, a positive place for that because... It just helps you not feel as alone as you can in times like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the next few weeks were just kind of us discussing, would we go again? You know, the doctor had kind of said to me, look, you know, we say to wait one cycle so they can date your pregnancy properly if mm. you were to get pregnant again quite quickly. So, like, in my head, I'm going, oh, well, I hope I get pregnant straight away. Like, I mean, just, you know, no holding back here. Like, we do want another baby you know, this is really sad that this has happened, but we were, you know, we, we kept kind of looking at the, we were really lucky that it was so, so early on, mm. you know, it, it could have been so much worse. And I think in life in general, I always go to the, it could be so much worse. Like this is terrible and this is awful and this is sad, but you know, it could be worse. So let's be grateful that this is how it happened for us. I was perfectly fine after the DNC. I didn't bleed heavily. I had no cramping. You know, I was really, really lucky that it all went quite smoothly. Um, so a few weeks later, we were down in Dingle. We got married there August last year. So we went down for our first anniversary. Um, and we actually found out that we were pregnant again. So I hadn't had a cycle in between. I was just still waiting for my period to return. Mm. Um, and had felt kind of pregnant on our little staycation and I was like god I wonder is that just how you feel after having the DNC and then having to wait for everything to return or could I possibly be and um, so did a test anyway and found out that I was so I was just I was just over the moon I just felt glowy and happy and it couldn't have happened at a better time we were down in Kerry and it was just you know the nicest part of the world to find out you're pregnant and it was just so it was amazing and Michael was thrilled and I really genuinely, I was just so full of hope. And I was like, right, stay positive. You know, you're, you're healthy. You're, you might be 39, but that doesn't matter. You know, you've had two kids. The, you know, the last, the miscarriage was just an unfortunate thing to happen. Um, and so, so yeah, common, statistically, was, so common. Oh my goodness, I couldn't get over, of course, the amount of people then that had shared with me that they had had one. I was just blown away. I just couldn't believe it. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, the weeks went by. I had kind of dated myself and when I thought I had ovulated and um, so I got past the kind of five and a half week mark and I was like okay this is good you know my, my boobs are still killing me my my tummy is fluttery you know I feel pregnant and this is great like, um, and I 
I had become slightly obsessed with doing pregnancy tests and ovulation strips and like very Just understandable very obsessed. <laughs> oh my gosh. but I think you are like I mean I was and you know like in in those first few weeks when you're waiting for it to be fully established and to get to that 12 week milestone oh, no. moment um even though that's also ridiculous because there is a risk to everything every single yeah. day but you do, you, 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 the moment you wake up, you're seeking those signals and signs within your body that it's Just still there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the kick later on in pregnancy with exactly. the movement, you know, you're always looking for it. Always on alert. It's the instinct in us to seek it out. And if there is a test in that drawer. <laughs> oh yeah. They were all done. <laughs> they were finished by the time this happened. It's impossible to resist because it is. And it's so destroying then when, when it doesn't turn out. Okay. So I had done literally, I had decided I'd gone to my doctor, everything had been confirmed. um, And she had sent in a referral letter to Hollis Street saying that I would need a dating scan because I didn't have a cycle Mm -hmm. in between so that we weren't entirely sure when my due date would be and that I would need a dating scan kind of fairly early on just to make sure. Um, so I got a letter from Hollis Street with my first appointment and it was for, oh my goodness, it was for, is today the 29th? It was for today? No way. That's mad. It was for today, it was for the 29th of September. Um, and oh my goodness. yeah, so that was my first appointment. So I should have been 13 weeks pregnant. And I was like, no, 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 no. I need a scan. And in the letter it said, um, we do not have ultrasound facilities at this appointment. And I was going, I know. So you're not even going to scan me at that appointment. Like I need, I need to have a scan. I need to find out how yeah. far gone I am. So I decided that we book a private scan just to make sure. I, I just couldn't have gone that. There's no way I would have got, made it that far without mm. one. So we booked a private scan um, and I had emailed them. So in my head, I would have been roughly around the seven week mark. So I waited until they could give me a, a kind of dating scan. It's kind of the earliest they can do them. Um, so I emailed and I explained to them what had happened in May and I said look I'm really kind of nervous I suppose and you know now that all the kind of restrictions have lifted a little bit is it okay Mm -hmm. if my husband comes with me like is it okay for him to be there so they responded and just said unfortunately their directors weren't willing to ease any of the restrictions that they had in place but that he could be in the building but just not in in the room in their offices so not like as in it's a big massive office block. So he could be in the office block, but not in their offices. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and that there was a place that he could wait outside. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. You know, there's nothing you can do. You, you, you can only, you know, I had kind of played my cards to them and there's no more fight left then once they say mm-hmm. no. Um, so I went in for the scan and the second she put the, the thing on my stomach, I knew I, that there was something wrong because she should have been able to see something and so all I could see was like I could see the sack but there was just this tiny little black dot so there was no embryo there was no baby there was nothing there was nothing there at all and so she decided then to do an internal scan so she I mean god love her like she must have searched for quite a while to find out where this Mm -hmm. little uh, embryo had implanted itself Um, but no she couldn't see anything so she said look unfortunately you're going to have to go into Hollis Street and obviously just ring ahead but just let them know that you you are pregnant but there's no sign of the pregnancy 
So I was kind of going, what do you mean there's no sign? Like, again, totally naive. You know, in my head, I'm going, well, a miscarriage is, is a baby that's in your uterus that is no longer in your, you know what I mean? It, might, mm. it was all very, I just didn't even know what to think at that stage. Um, so I found Hollis Street. Oh, I, wa- I walked out of um, the appointment and I walked to the reception. She gave me the referral letter and the scan images and I, was, I, wa- I just wasn't holding it together even at that point. Um, and she was like, look, I'm so, so sorry. And I was like, you know, it's not your fault, obviously, thanks a million. So I walked out and spotted Michael and I actually couldn't even, I couldn't even make eye contact with him. I was so like disappointed and almost felt a bit like a failure if I looked at him and told him again that this, this it's, not a, it's, like, it's not a baby again, there's no baby. Um, so he walked over to me and he just went well and I just shook my head and I managed to kind of keep it together until we got into the stairwell and I just, I just collapsed into a heap and just bawled and I couldn't even, I couldn't even find the words to, to tell him like it's not that there's no heartbeat this time, there's actually just no baby. Like, you know, we got into the car and I said, you need to bring me to Hollis Street. And he was like, okay. And I still hadn't told him what was going on. And I rang Hollis Street and kind of explained to them on the phone, knowing that he was going to hear, so I wouldn't mm. have to do it all again. Um, so I drove into Hollis Street, went up to the ultrasound department. So yeah, they confirmed that it was most likely ectopic, but that they couldn't see it on the scan because it could be too high up or it could be too small or for various reasons. So I must have been in there for maybe, I'd say, 40 minutes having a scan done. And this was my second internal scan. So I'm now very uncomfortable. I'm now mm. feeling very vulnerable and just alone, really. Um, and very much trying to ask questions, but was kind of told to stop asking questions because they were trying to concentrate. And I'm like, well, you have to understand my point of view here. I need answers as to what's going on. And, it was all very uncomfortable. Um, so then she asked me to go into waiting room B once again. Hate that room there in Hall Street. Um, so waiting room B is the, the waiting room you go into if you're miscarrying or if there may be something wrong with your pregnancy. So you're not in with all of the expectant mothers with bumps, which is, you know, it is amazing, but it's a very lonely room when you know what waiting room B is. So I went in and I sat down and I just burst out crying. Um, I, I was there for what felt like forever. Um, I then got quite annoyed. It must have been about another 40 minutes of sitting there by myself. And I walked out to the receptionist and I said, look, I have to go and collect my son from crash. I can't sit mm-hmm. here any longer. You know, get the doctor to call me and we can discuss whatever on the phone, but I really do need to go home. And she said, oh, the doctor is just being held up. And I said, well, I understand that, but I do have to get home. I can't. My husband's sitting outside in the car. Like, we need to get back home to collect our kids. So I can't. This is now an hour and a half later. So she quite kind of just said, you need to go back into the waiting room, wait for the doctor. I was like, oh my God, okay, so back into the waiting room again. And at this point, I'm now back being really upset because I just needed him or somebody with me. Um, so a while later, anyway, the doctor arrived and said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. Um, we don't seem, we can't seem to find the pregnancy. And we've looked at the scans from the clinic and we've looked at these scans here. And, you know, we just, we're just concerned that it's not where it should be. And your levels are obviously you know, you're showing that you are pregnant. And I was like, yeah. So she said, come back in 48 hours. So obviously you have to have your bloods taken every 48 hours to see what the levels are doing, whether they're staying the same or progressing or dropping. So she said, we'd like to see them dropping, which means that you, you know, you, you will miscarry obviously within the next couple of days. Um, but if they stay the same or increase, then 
there's something going on somewhere. So they had stayed the same. So when I went back in on the Friday, um, she basically said to me, look, we, we think you're having an ectopic pregnancy and it's Friday, you know, Saturday, Sunday, you're out wherever you live and you're not close to the hospital. If it ruptures, you're going to be in trouble. She was like, it's my advice that you stay in. And I'm going, oh, I really don't want to have to stay in here. Mm. I can't explain this to my eight-year-old. I, you know, I'm going to be all alone. And I, for one, am one that just likes to keep busy in life and keep mm. your mind active and your body active. And then things will be fine if you just keep busy. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I kind of was like, right. You know, they're basically telling you that you're putting yourself at risk if you go home. So, and the, and the day is very, very dangerous. Oh, yeah. As well. well I mean, I didn't even know at the time how dangerous it could be. I was like, oh, for sure, if it ruptures, I'll just ring an ambulance or, you know, surely it can't be that bad. I didn't realize the, the dangers involved in a ruptured ectopic pregnancy at the time at all. Which, again, as, you know, as, as women, our age, mothers, children. We, yeah. we, there's just so, there's such an absence of this kind of information. And there's so many different types of miscarriages that you can have that I didn't yeah. realize until I had one myself. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be a learning curve when you're in it. No, exactly. And you're totally blindsided by all this information and yeah. you've nobody there to absorb the information for you because you're no. not really in the moment. Um, so I phoned Michael and I said, look, they're keeping me in. And he said, what's going on again? So once again, I had to explain absolutely. Well, I mean, the bits of information that I had retained that I was relaying back to him. Obviously, there was bits that I was drifting off into my own imagination going, what if this happens? What if this happens? But the doctor's still talking and I'm not really registering anything. Um, so they brought me up to the gynae ward, which as I walked in, there was elderly ladies in there. And I was like, what? I was just totally, you know, shocked, I think, when I walked in. But it's obviously the gynae ward, so it's all ages. It's up to 80 or 100 that, that end up in that ward. Um, so I thankfully was down in the corner and a nice big window beside my bed. And yeah, the curtains were closed and that was it. Every so often the, the nurses came in and checked my blood pressure and my stomach to see if I had any pain. I had pain on the right-hand side, um, but not anything dramatic. And mm. um, then the doctor came in to see me on the Saturday and he said, look, we're reluctant to do anything at the moment. We're just going to wait and see what your bloods are doing. So we'll check them again on Sunday or tomorrow. So I was like, okay, fine. So bloods again, first thing Sunday morning. And they had fasted me on Saturday morning, just in case it ruptured and I had to go for surgery. Then Sunday morning, they were fine. They didn't fast me. So I stuffed my face with lots <laughs> of hospital toast. Um, and they did more bloods on Sunday. And then they came back Sunday evening. Unfortunately, the levels hadn't dropped at all. So they knew that this little embryo was implanted somewhere it shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, I'm lying there like an Egypt, kind of willing it to just float on down into my uterus. I'm like, is that even possible? Like, can that happen? That it might just, you know, swim all the way down all of a sudden? And, you know, he was like, mm, no, no, no. This guy is implanted somewhere, but we just can't see where. Um, so... I then, they did mention um, a meta, met, I can never say it, the metatrexate injection. Um, so I had once again turned to Instagram for some words of encouragement and words of wisdom and experiences. And again, was blown away by the amount of messages I got back. And again, all the different experiences from people, I decided that I wasn't going to get this injection because I'm 39 years old. You you can't try to conceive again for at least three months after having it. 
the first injection may not work so you may have to have another one apparently it's pretty hard on your system so it makes you it can make you quite sick and i mean i'm a total lightweight when it comes to any sort of stomach bugs if there's one going i will get it so i was like this is going to make me ill and i would rather not have to have this um, and also the risk of having another ectopic is is high if you've well, had one already and they don't remove the tube so that played in my mind as well what was the benefit in terms of what why was it suggested so it basically it prevents them having to do surgery so they give you this injection and it's a chemo drug so it basically breaks down the pregnancy so it disintegrates the cells and it, it just breaks it down um so then it will just come away naturally and that'll be it but your tube can be damaged from us the, the little fine hairs in your tube that kind of are meant to hurry the embryo, embryo mm. along with the egg um so yeah i just decided it wasn't for me and i had said it to the doctor and he was like well look you know if that's what we decide is the best course of action then and i very strongly was like well i, I you know you've got to find some other way because i'm not having this injection and i actually spoke to one of the midwives there absolutely lovely woman and i had actually a bit of crack with her thank god it was a bit, some, another face to just talk to um and she very much said you know you are 39 years old you need to look at the you know the fact that you can't conceive again for quite a while after this and she was like you need to have a voice here if this is how strongly you feel about this don't back down in a very nice kind of you know experienced way you have every right to say you don't want this injection so i did and i put my foot down and i just said no absolutely not so i had another um quite a long scan on the monday quite uncomfortable um and again there was this little black sack in my uterus but there was they couldn't really figure out what it was and there was this other white we we're just going to call it a thing because they didn't even know what it was in my uterus as well um but again she couldn't see anything in my tubes so my file was sent off to one of the consultants and they came back down that afternoon and said look you're going in for surgery so in in this whole weekend so this friday i was kept in michael came in on friday evening um, to get the car keys, I parked my car on Marion Square and he, the porter said, like, oh, I'll go, I'll bring her bag up to her. And Michael was like, well, no, I, I kind of want to see her. Like, you know, she's been kept in. She's a bit upset, you know. Um, and he was like, well, no, we're not really letting anybody in. And Michael was like, well, like, I need to get the car keys off. Or I need to get her rings, you know, the stuff that I need to pick up from her as well. And, you know, he eventually backed down. So he came up for maybe about a half an hour on the Friday evening. Um, and then on the Sunday then, when I knew they weren't going to let me out anytime soon, I pretty much begged the doctor, could I, could I leave for an hour or two and just mm. go see the kids? So I went over to the playground in Marion Square, which was just lovely. Bit of fresh air, bit of sunshine. <laughs> and the midwife that I had obviously got quite chatty with was like, please don't collapse. Like the paperwork involved, if you collapse in Marion Square, <laughs> is just horrible. So please don't collapse over there. And I was like, I'll do my best. And I didn't feel well. And I was stupid because I didn't feel well that morning. Mm. I felt really, really faint, really woozy. Um, they had been fasting me, so I think, that was probably making me a bit panicky that they were planning something that they weren't telling me about. And it was all just playing on my mind. So I only kind of lasted about an hour and a half. And I just said to Michael, I was like, I think I need to go back. I don't feel well at all. I was really like sticky and hot and bothered and just didn't feel right. So when I went black, my, my blood pressure had dropped a bit. So they were just like, are you feeling okay? And I was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fine. I've been fine. But they knew that well that I, I just wasn't quite myself. Um, so yeah, so the Monday then, the Monday afternoon, the consultant had a look at my file and he decided that they were going to operate. Um, 
that they, they didn't know where this embryo had implanted itself, the, the egg had implanted itself and that they needed to have a look, have a, a deeper look, I suppose. So I found out around lunchtime and kind of let Michael and my family know, I suppose, that I was going in for surgery that afternoon, but that it was all very straightforward from what they were telling me and all little keyhole and tiny little incisions. Um, and then I was brought down, but then, the, then you know, you're bombarded with questions. I had to have a COVID test, that was fine. Once I got through all that, I just, I just fell to pieces. I started to get really panicky. I explained to the anesthetist that I, I, I was fine. Up, you know, face value, I was fine, but inside that I was absolutely dying and really panicking. And I just struggled so much not having Michael there by my side. And she was like, look, we're going to be there by your side. I'm not going to let go of your hand. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. So I was like, right, okay. So, you know, the long walk down to the, to the uh, theater with your gown on and you're, you know, you just feel so vulnerable um, with one of the nurses. And she brought me down and they sat me down, filled out all the forms, um, signing your life away, really. Um, and then an emergency came in ahead of me, so I had to go back to my bed. Mm -hmm. I was all geared to do this. So, which, look, I completely understand. This was very apologetic. And I said, look, Jesus, you know, I would never in a million years say, uh, no, I want to go mm -hmm. first. So it was another probably 40 minutes or so before I, call, I got called again. Um, so again, down, I think I was way worse the second walk down because after the first time I just built myself up and I was ready to go. And then having to go and do it all again, I just really, my mind was just going into overdrive. And I always do have a thing, you know, my, my daughter has me, you know, my, obviously, as I said, my first husband did pass away. So any little operations or silly little things like that in my head, I'm going, if something goes wrong here, you know, she's by herself. So I just kind of needed, I needed somebody, either my mom or Michael, just to be there with me to say, you're yeah. going to be fine. We're going to be here when you wake up. It's going to be fine. But anyway, the Anissa, that's was what the support incredible. system, that's what the support system is for. It, you know, your mind will take you to those places. Your mind oh, will yeah. take you back to your worst case scenarios and your biggest traumas. And that's the role of the person that loves you the most. They hold you together. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, that's also what the staff are having to deal with as well is them, then me then going into full blown panic attack, heart absolutely racing, her trying to get me to calm down, you know, standing outside the theater door and she's like, you know, you're ready. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm actually not ready. I, I don't want to have to do this. And she was like, come on, you know, I'm going to be there with you. And you get up onto the bed and there's 10 strangers mm -hmm. all swarmed around you doing different things. And they couldn't find a vein, so she tried like three or four different veins to try and get a vein. And obviously, I don't know whether it was because I was panicking so much or what was going on, but it was it was sore, you know. I was just I was lying on the bed and the tears were just streaming down my face. And she's holding my hand, but also trying to to get a vein as well to put mm. me under. And it was just really it was just really hard. I just found it really emotionally draining. Um, but thankfully, when I came to in recovery, Michael was there. Um, I don't really remember all that much. I think I was a bit loopy. Um, so the, the surgeon came in and explained everything they had done. They had found the little guy um, way up the top of my tube. So that's why they couldn't see it in any of the ultrasounds. Um, and that it had ruptured just slightly, that it had started to kind of mm. rupture um, so that they were lucky that they, they operated when they did. Um, <laughs> he also said that they found uh, part of my bowel had attached itself to my C-section scar. <laughs> So I had an emergency C-section with my second baby. Um, 
So yeah, and he said, so we fixed that for you too. And I, I just remember that made me laugh. I was like, of course you found part of my bowel attached to something it shouldn't have been attached to. Um, and was there any warning signs that that was the case? Of my bowel? Yeah, had you experienced no. any discomfort since, oh, no. since your little boy oh, well, was born? My, yeah, my C-section scar has never been has never been comfortable. As in, it's always been, part of it's always been, I suppose, funny to touch. Not even tender, but just, it can get quite tender. But I thought that was normal. I mean, it was an emergency C-section as well. So, you know, it's, it's a bigger scar than normal. You know, I, I just yeah. assumed it was all part and parcel of having an emergency C-section. Apparently it's not, because it feels much better now. Okay, well, the, again, more information. We should know <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. So, yeah, he did say then, obviously, that they had had to remove my left tube as well so I was like oh okay um, and funny all the pain that I was getting was actually in the right side so it was completely misleading because they were fully convinced that this this had implanted itself in my right tube mm. it was actually my left tube so they removed the tube and you know obviously went through the whole look your other your other tube looks beautifully healthy and there's no reason why you can't conceive again and you know, then I needed all of the painkillers that they had to give. Um, so Michael left probably, I think it was about a half an hour, 40 minutes later. Um, and then the next morning, the doctor came in, went through everything again, and just said that, you know, in six weeks' time, you'll have a, a telephone follow-up. Um, and that's it, you're good to go. So I went home, probably lunchtime that day, Michael came in to collect me. Um, and yeah, then it's just the recovery, so... You know, you have your stitches and your glued tummy back together and life goes on very much. So if you're a mum of two, you don't really get a chance to, uh, you're the mum of two in the middle of a pandemic. So your children are always home. <laughs> you know, anyone that's gone to Hollow Street and suffered a loss, um, you do walk in and out the same door as everybody else if you're yeah. in the public part of the hospital. Um, so I even remember with Lily, you know, obviously Jeff wasn't around when I had her and I had to leave the hospital with her by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't experienced labor and delivery during a pandemic, but I have experienced labor and delivery without a partner by my side. And, you know, it, it, it's just such a traumatic time, you know, um, leaving by myself without a baby in my, in my uterus was just, yeah, it's just really sad. I don't think there's any other way of kind of describing it. It's just such a sad feeling. Um, and you just kind of leave and walk across the road and get into a car, you know. These babies had two parents. Absolutely. They had you, but they also had Michael. Yeah. How has he experienced being so removed from the process? I think that's just it. I think he just feels so removed. I think it was very hard for him to kind of support me emotionally because he hadn't seen a scan. He had like, sorry, he saw the, the, the scan photos, but he hadn't seen it on the screen as he did with Dylan. You know, he, he felt so included in, in the pregnancy with Dylan because he was there for every single scan from the very first, you know, it, it's just, it's a very removed experience for, for him. Um, I obviously try to tell him even now, like I'm, I'm what five weeks post-op now and I still say to him like I'm having a pretty shit day today you know mm. I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps and obviously your hormones are absolutely raging you know your body since April my body has thought that I've been pregnant twice and I haven't been you know it hasn't continued on so my hormones are just all over the place and um, so yeah he's had to deal with 
with all of that and then you know the conversations of are we going to give this another go is this like all of the the, the universe telling us to be happy with our lot or is that just ridiculous do we try mm. again you know you only have to wait for one cycle and it's just it, it is very hard you know a lot of people think that get back on the saddle you know try again and see what happens and you know at the moment i'm excited at the thought of being pregnant again but i'm also petrified at the thought of being pregnant again because i like to keep telling myself you know you've got two perfectly healthy children and you've had two totally breezy pregnancies before there's nothing stopping you from having another breezy pregnancy um, and the thing about an ectopic is it, it's not related to the first miscarriage at all you know there's a lot more i suppose going on than just experiencing the actual experience if you know what i mean um yeah. but but between as you said those hormone surges it bringing up the grief that you experienced during Lily's pregnancy. A lot, yeah. And the feelings of going through that labor alone, back in Hollis Street alone, like it's... Like my it, mom and my sister were so there, vulnerable. But not, yeah. your, not the person who you made the baby with, you know? Not yeah. the, the one person that's meant to be beside you in, in normal circumstances, you know? It's, it's really difficult and I do understand I do understand partly why the restrictions are in place, but I don't understand a lot of it. I don't understand why the correct PPE gear can't be worn or, you know, temperatures taken at the door or I can go down to my local coffee shop. Well, before obviously the latest restrictions came in and that's what really got me. Um, so that the Thursday after my operation, we decided to go down for lunch um, and we walked into the coffee shop and we sat down with no masks on. You know, we were there for probably 40, 50 minutes, had our lunch, had a lovely time. And I walked out the door and I just looked at him and I was like, but you couldn't be with me for that scan. When I found out that, you know, our baby was, had no heartbeat, you know, you weren't, you weren't allowed to be there, but yet we can sit down and we can have a, a yummy sourdough avocado smash, but we can't comfort each other in the most needed time in our life, you know? And, I just, I just think it's unnecessary. I think it's so important for the partners to be included. And I just think more needs to be done to help them be included and not, not just keep kind of brushing it off and being, you know, they're stating facts that the cases, they need to keep them down. I completely understand that. We all understand that. But it goes much further and way beyond COVID cases. It goes into mental health and into the, you know, just the general care of these expectant moms that are, you know, some for the first time. So they, they're experiencing all these things for the very first time. I'm lucky I have two children already. You know, I know some faces in Hollow Street because I've been in and out so many times already. But, you know, I, I can't imagine what it must be like for first time moms to have to experience number one, pregnancy alone, but God forbid anything actually does go wrong. Like, it's just such a scary time, it really is. There is no removal of the pain or the loss or any of those feelings, regardless of who's in the room. But what would it have meant to have him there? What would it have meant? How different do you think it would have been in terms of how you have had to experience this if you were together? I think I would have grieved at the time. I don't think I've grieved for either of our little babies that didn't make it. I, I think I've just, 
it was such a traumatic thing to go through and you are expected to be so strong because you're there by yourself and you do, you take your breath, you count to 10, you do whatever, you know, your voice starts to quiver and you, you kind of, you almost check yourself to suck it up. And I wouldn't have had to do any of that had Michael been with me. I would have sat, I would have cried. We would have hugged each other. We would have instantly grieved for our babies. Um, and, you know, there's been plenty of tears since I've got home, but it's just not the same. You know, it's more of frustration tears now. It's more like I'm a great talker, which I think is really important for me. It's the way I deal with things. I like to be able to, to openly talk about my experiences. And even hearing other people's experiences really helps me in my grieving process. It always has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of turned to that. I, again, shared my story again on Instagram and just said, look, you know, unfortunately, this is what we're going through this time around. And the support was absolutely incredible, but we definitely haven't, we haven't gone through the normal grieving process, I think, for a couple who have lost two babies in the space of three months because he just wasn't allowed to be there with me. So I feel like I've, I've done a little bit of probably grieving by myself, but not as much as I would have had had he been with me. You had to armor up. You had to, yeah. you had to put your armor on and face it bravely instead of going through those natural feelings and emotions. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are women today hearing, listening to this who are going through it or have just gone through it or are scared to go through it. Um, and you have, and I hope you're beginning to heal. And it's the last thing you want to hear in the midst of all your sadness and grief, but it, it's so true. I mean, it just takes time. It really does. You just have to allow yourself to feel sad when you need to feel sad and you know I mean the only advice that I can give to anybody experiencing any sort of you know sadness or bad news or you know uncertainty I suppose during a pregnancy at the moment is don't be afraid to ask those questions that your your partner might be the one to ask you know find your voice in there and and try and be strong enough to make sure you get all the answers because in, in a situation where you're totally blindsided by, by a message that you've just been given or information you've just been given, it's very hard to, to concentrate and think straight on, on things you need to ask. So yeah, it's, it's just a really, it's a really hard time for anybody going through pregnancy in Ireland at the moment. It's very difficult as you know yourself. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah. but I, we're so aware of it at every month. We're so aware that there is so much fear. Um, the levels of anxiety amongst, especially, as you said, first time pregnant women for whom this process is entirely new and they're, you know, the changes within their body are, it's intimidating all the time. You know, you, you, you do feel immensely vulnerable in pregnancy. Because as you said, from the moment that you think there might be something there, there's such an attachment. Absolutely. And to have your worst fears realized at this time when the support systems are not there for you, um, we fear is going to have such a long-term impact. I think it will, which is the scary part. Yeah. It's the maternal mental health for the long term. 
Um, and that's why I'm so, I'm, I'm really so thankful for you and for women like you who can so courageously share their stories because it means that there is some care and support right now for the women that need it. Because if this is allowed to continue and women deal with it years down the track, it's, it's too late. Yeah, it's too late, yeah. So where there is emotional trauma related to pregnancy or birth or loss or grief or fertility, every mum needs her village now. Absolutely. And I think that's the part that was, sorry, very emotional. Um, I think that's the part that they're not listening to. That's the, you know, they're looking at numbers, they're looking at figures. It's not about numbers or figures. It's about the long-term effect that this is having on all of these expectant mothers. And it really needs to change. And I just hope that somebody somewhere can just see that it isn't about the figures anymore. It's really about caring for expectant moms and expectant dads who who grieve the loss of their children just as intensely and need to to feel supported through this as well it is their child Yeah. yeah it is their child too they're not visitors they are parents Sinead thank you for joining us on every mum the podcast um thank you so much for having me it was such an important one to tell and you are helping so many by doing so so thank you you're so welcome if you have been affected by the topics raised in this episode please visit our show notes where you'll find a list of supports for every parent suffering a loss and if this episode has helped you please do let us know and share with others who may need it. Every Mum the Podcast is kindly supported by Water Wipes.